0: Now let's start off with our scene of activity, kind of getting a running start into the text. We'll be Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 28. But you should note that we are still in Tuesday, Tuesday of what's commonly known as Jesus' week of passion. It is the final seven days of Jesus's earthly ministry before ultimately his crucifixion, his resurrection, some 40 days later, his ascension. The final week of Jesus's life. And it's Tuesday as he's making his way from Bethany to Jerusalem. He's teaching the disciples. He's teaching this multitude traveling with him some important lessons concerning the withering of the fig tree. He arrives to the temple. He enters the temple mount. Boom, ambush. He's ambushed by the religious leaders. First, it was the scribes, the priests, the elders. They come to Jesus and they question him on his authority. Then the second wave was the Pharisees and the Herodians, who then questioned Jesus concerning taxes. Finally, the Sadducees questioned Jesus on marriage and the resurrection. For you see, they didn't believe in resurrection which is why they were so sad, you see. These men. These men. Yeah. I did I did throw out the joke. I did say sad, you see. It was gonna happen at some point. It's not even in my notes, it just kind of came out. It's a sandyism. That's a reference to my father, if you don't know. Who is, who is the master of corny, ridiculous jokes <laughs> that shockingly work. Anyway, Jesus is ambushed. The front row is going to derail me this morning. He's ambushed. The religious leaders, they have no intention on an honest debate. They have no intention on an honest dialogue. Their entire motivation their entire motivation is to try to catch Jesus in his words and by doing so, discredit his ministry and minimize his popularity. That's their ultimate aim because a a plot has been hatched. Arresting Jesus is their goal, but they feared the multitude. They feared his popularity. So all of these things were designed to discredit him. Now, at this point in our travels through Mark, We're not going to see these religious leaders again. We're not going to see them again until Jesus is actually arrested. This final wave, these three waves of questions, it's the last we see of them before they pop up again, arresting Jesus. And so I want to take a moment, for for the sake of context... And also contrast with the story we will be looking at this morning, it's important for us to make a few points concerning these religious leaders because I'm left always with the thought, the question, I don't know if you sympathize or relate to this, but why would they? If they know that Jesus is the Messiah, If they're the religious leaders and their job is to vet those that came in and out, the prophets, they were to teach God's word, they were the experts of scripture. If they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised king, why would they willingly, knowingly reject Jesus? I mean, you really have to kind of take a step back and consider this. It's not often discussed. And I find that when you really get down to the nitty-gritty, these religious leaders rejected Jesus, knowingly rejected Jesus, really for the same three reasons that many people reject him today. First, Jesus was a threat to their authority. If these Jews conceded that Jesus was indeed who he said he was, if they accepted the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the implications were more than they were willing to accept. Why? It would mean if Jesus was the Son of God, if Jesus was the Messiah sent by God, then his word, his authority superseded. It trumped their own. In essence, if Jesus was God, then he possessed the right, he possessed the authority, to tell them what they could and couldn't do. And you know, I have found that many people today reject Jesus. It's not over intellect. It's not over rationalism. It's, It's not over a logical examination of the facts. Often people reject Jesus willingly, knowing he's God, but mainly because they don't want to submit to his authority. People, people want to rule their own lives. People want to be the captain of their own ship, the master of their own destiny. People want to call their own shots, do what they want when they want to do it. You know, at the core of man's rebellion, at the heart of his rebellion, has always been the desire to be his own God. If you recall, in the Garden of Eden, when Lucifer came to to Eve, what was his reasoning? What was his logic? Why did he say she should eat the fruit? Because in the moment that she did, she would be like God. She would be like God. And ultimately, this is the basis of so much human rebellion. Our desire to reject God so that I can be my own God. People want to be their own authority when it comes to social matters. A woman's right over her body the legalization of drugs, sexual freedom. The list can go on and on and on. Who is God to tell me what to do? Well, if you're God, he has no right. But if his authority supersedes yours, then you're in tragic error. If you accept Jesus as God and you embrace that reality, then you must also accept the reality that his authority concerning matters overrides your own. And for some people, that is a pill too big to swallow. So they reject Jesus because they don't want to submit to his authority. But there's another reason that we see that these religious leaders rejected Jesus, and subsequently, that many of us at some point or are presently rejecting Jesus. And that is the fact that Jesus challenged their religious system. These men had established a religious system, the law, Judaism that combined Scripture with their own man-made traditions. They took pride in their moral standing. And yet, what was Jesus always doing? Jesus was constantly, over and over and over again, undermining and highlighting, even picking on the flaws in their religion. Through his teaching, over and over and over again, Jesus would point his finger at the religious leaders and he would say, he would openly claim that their moral code only produced a false morality. They were hypocrites. His teachings affirm this. His activities, well, in Jesus' activities, he was all the time openly disregarding their man-made traditions. Eating food on the Sabbath. Oh, the Sabbath fasting. We've looked at many of them in our travels through Mark. Over and over and over again, when Jesus had the opportunity to pick at one of their man-made traditions that inflated their moral ego, he would do it. And so his teachings attacked their religion. His activities attacked their religion. But you know, his associations did as well. Jesus was constantly hanging out with those the religious establishment wanted nothing to do with. He was constantly hanging out with people that were sinful, people that religion had condemned, but Jesus had come to save. Jesus was always contrasting their judgmental attitude by a demonstration of his love. See, the truth is that religion has never saved a soul because it establishes the framework by where man seeks to achieve God's favor without God's involvement. And that is impossible. You see, people, I have found, reject Jesus. Yes, because they don't want to submit to an authority higher than theirs. But secondly, people reject Jesus because they don't, when it's all said and done, want to admit that they need help. We're prideful people. And for many, acknowledging the need for divine help is seen as nothing more than a sign of human weakness. Ex-Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura, yes, also the wrestler, he quipped concerning God and religion that God is viewed as nothing more than a crutch for the weak. It's been said, and maybe you've heard it, that only sheep need a shepherd. People reject God. They reject divine intervention because we don't like to admit, I can't do it. I can't do it. We don't like to admit our need for help. One of my favorite authors, Robbie Zacharias, he said it this way. He said, A man rejects God neither because of intellectual demands nor because of the scarcity of the evidence. A man rejects God because of a moral resistance that refuses to admit his need for God. I think he says it well. You see, the first essential stage of salvation What is essential for salvation? It all begins with what? My acknowledging that I need a savior. Until you are able to admit that, Jesus can do nothing. The third thing that we see with these scribes that we find as an indictment, maybe of you, of me at one point in our culture, is that we reject Jesus because Jesus was a threat and is a threat to our way of living. The years under Roman rule, the Jewish leaders had not only adapted to the governance of Rome, but had actually begun to thrive under Roman occupation. You see, Rome allowed a certain level of self-governance, autonomy, And evidence suggests, according to Josephus and others, that during the first century, though the population at large under Roman oppression didn't thrive, the religious political establishment, the Jewish establishment, they actually thrived. We mentioned this before, but the guys running the whole racket there in the Temple Mount, Ananias, Caiaphas, their net worth yearly ranged into two to three million dollars our day. They were doing very well because of the, the scheme, the system they had established with Rome. As long as the leaders kept the peace, Rome would allow the relationship to prove mutually beneficial. Now understand, the problem is that Jesus, his popularity with the people, it was proving to be a political liability. Jesus had just entered Jerusalem. And they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. And these leaders look down and they're worried. They're fearful of what? Of Rome identifying them with Jesus and their whole house of cards coming tumbling down. And you know the truth is that people reject Jesus also because they don't want to change their way of living. And they know that Jesus is a threat to it. You see, People understand, people realize that when you surrender your life to Jesus, there are many aspects of your life that will automatically change. These are non-negotiables. That when I surrender myself to Jesus, this is not accepting that Jesus is God. This is me submitting to the reality that he's not only God, but he's my Lord. When I do that, I know that there's some things that have to change Automatically, friends will leave. Activities will change. Lifestyles will be affected. Behaviors adjusted. And for many, they reject Jesus because they would prefer life as it is without his influence. These men, they had not rejected Jesus on the basis of truth, nor a lack of evidence or some glaring inconsistency in his character. These religious leaders rejected Jesus because they refused to submit to his authority over their lives. They refused to humble themselves by admitting their need for a savior, and they refused to accept the life change that would come with following Jesus. And the truth is there are some of you rejecting Jesus for the same reasons. And we look at these scribes, we look at these religious leaders, we read through the text, and we think, how stupid! How stupid indeed. Now, we look at this because, as mentioned, these leaders' rejection of Jesus establishes a context and a contrast for what we're about to see next because, though the majority of the scribes would reject Jesus, not all of them would be so resistant to the truth. Following these three ways of inspection, Jesus is now approached by what seems to be a genuine seeker of the truth. Verse 28 of Mark 12, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, Which is the first commandment of all? Now, though this scribe was not part of the initial group, it seems, that came to inspect Jesus at the end of Mark chapter 11, it appears that he was present in some back corner of the temple when the scribes returned to give their report. So he's not there during the initial interrogation. He's hearing from it kind of as a second party. And the way he handles the exchange is interesting. Look at it again. First, we're told that he heard them reasoning together. The scribes they had challenged Jesus on the basis of his authority, and Jesus had responded to their question with what? With a, the parable of the wicked vine dressers. We can't recap it but it was a scathing rebuke of these religious leaders that they had rejected the prophets and now they were knowingly rejecting the son of God because they wanted the vineyard for themselves. As a matter of fact, this was so in your face what Jesus said that they, verse 12 of chapter 12, knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And so they come back. And they're hot, and they're flustered, they're irritated, and they're reasoning. They're discussing, they're examining, they're disputing. They're trying to put together what Jesus said. And this scribe, this unknown scribe, he's eavesdropping on the conversation. So first he heard them reasoning together. Then we're told that he perceived, that he discerned, that he knew that Jesus had answered well. Literally, this word well means that Jesus had answered so correctly that there was zero, zip, zilch, nada, no room for blame. Understand the scribe's perception was more than a curiosity spawned by the sheer brilliance of Jesus' answer. And Jesus' answer was brilliant. What he perceived Was that the actual substance of what he answered was was correct? And what had Jesus answered? The substance of what he had said was that he was the Son of God, and these idiots were knowingly rejecting him, and they would be judged for it. So, this scribe, and I can see the scene unfolding, he's kicking back, he knows they're going. He's anticipating their re- their return. He's one of a multitude listening in. He's eavesdropping. They're talking about what Jesus has said. And as he's listening, you know deep within his heart, he wants to reject it like they're rejecting it, but it's not adding up. And so he's listening and he's perceiving. And though they're speaking concerning all that Jesus had done with the angle of how they could try to tear him down for it, The man's curiosity was piqued because he knew the Holy Spirit pricked his heart. And so what does he do? We're told that he came to Jesus with a question of his own. And you know, I love this progression. Note the progression. The man heard what Jesus said. He perceived that what Jesus said was correct. And so he came to investigate it on his own. And for some of you maybe. You've had a friend talking about Jesus and what Jesus has done in your life, what Jesus has done in your heart, the work that's taking place, and you've heard it, and you're looking at the story and you're perceiving that, wow, I want what that person has. That, that This doesn't seem to be fake. This doesn't seem to be conjured up or manufactured. This seems genuine. And so you come to investigate on your own. Now, before we move forward, think about it. How does Mark know any of this? (laughs) Like, how does Mark get the backstory? We we know that Mark gets his account from Peter and that Peter was there, obviously, as the scribe arrived to, to pose this question. Peter's present for that. But how does he know the backstory of what took place leading the scribe to the point of asking Jesus the question? And that is, Because anytime someone comes as an honest seeker, I am convinced that they're exposed to the truth and that this scribe becomes a believer and tells Peter what took place and Peter relays this to Mark. Now his question. His question for Jesus. Which is the first commandment of all? Now, the way this is translated in the English might make this seem as though that the scribe's asking, well, which one in numerical order? The first of the commandments. No, this word first is the Greek adjective protos, which means first in rank or influence or principle. It's akin to asking, what is the most important, the chief, the principal, the most influential of all of the commandments? What's the most important? And so verse 29 Jesus answered him and said the first or the most important the chief of all of the commandments is this Hear O Israel the Lord your God the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength Now Jesus's answer here can be divided into two sections First, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This verse is known by the Jews as the Shema, literally, here, the Shema Israel, here, Israel. It was the centerpiece, still is the centerpiece, of the Jewish morning and evening prayers, making it, in the first century and today, one of the most quotable passages in all of the Old Testament. And the Jews cherish this verse because it encapsulated what they felt made them unique, the monotheistic essence of God, that God existed as one. Ironically, it also validates the Trinitarian view of God, that yes, God exists as one, but in three persons. This phrase, the Lord, is literally in the Hebrew, the existing one. It is the unpronounced name of God. And then our God is Elohim, which is the plural masculine title for God, speaking of his his more judge kind of uh, characteristics and attributes, that he's a judge. So the Lord, the existing one, our God, Elohim, is one, or Echad, which means one, (laughs) singular, and so you can translate the Shema literally, Hero Israel, the existing one our Elohim, the plural nature God is one. So, yes, affirming monotheism, but also affirming the Trinity. But then Jesus does something uncommon. At this point, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This scribe, everyone's there, they're nodding their head. This is the most quotable passage. They're all agreeing. But then he does something a little different. He continues his quotation into the lesser known and lesser quoted Deuteronomy 6, verse five, which is, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now to understand what Jesus means by you shall love the Lord, you've got to begin to define a few terms here. Because when I read this, I think we, we don't take enough time to examine the essence of what Jesus is communicating. I think we get it really wrong, actually. You see, we often examine a command like this. You shall love the Lord your God. And we look at it naturally from a Western philosophical perspective. That's obvious. We're from the West. So that's how we basically view everything. Everything but Western culture has contorted the concept of love in two very simple ways. First, we use the same word, love, to describe a myriad of ranging interactions. The same word that I used to say, I love my wife. I also used to say, I love my dog, and I love ice cream, and I love the Braves, and I love God. It's the same word that we use to, d- to define, to relay our feelings or our emotions or our experiences with a wide range of different things, knowing that the word falls very short, doesn't it? I mean, clearly, you don't love ice cream as much as your wife. Now, I know ladies, sometimes you maybe love ice cream more than you love your husband, but that's a different topic. So understand that there's a flaw from our understanding of love because we use the same word for everything. But secondly, love, well, we define love culturally as either being an emotional feeling or a sexual exercise. I love you. I'm in love with you. We use these phrases to to describe the actual euphoria that we're experiencing chemically in our brain from the interactions that we're experiencing to to the point that when people end up getting divorced or breaking up, they say, I'm just no longer in love with you. I no longer feel the emotion that I felt when I initially encountered you. Basically, dopamine, serotonin, all taking place in your limbic system. So we define love as an emotional feeling, goosebumps. But then we also define it as sex. Hence, I made love last night. Hey baby, let's go make love. Like that's how we define love. It's pretty silly actually. We define it, we define everything, every interaction with the same word, and we attribute it to being either an emotion, Or sex. Now, with this in mind, think about what Jesus is saying here. And truthfully, how offensive it is to me. The commanding directive, this is a command. You shall love. What? See, I don't care if it's if it's a command that's being issued by God to mankind or a command being issued by a husband to a spouse right? That doesn't work. You telling your wife, you shall love me. (laughs) Like that doesn't work, does it? Parents to children, I know we've tried, but that doesn't work. You see, if it's this commanding directive that you shall love God, then it's at best unrealistic, or at worst, extremely offensive. Forced command love. You see, if love is is either an emotional feeling or sexual exercise, then by definition, you can't command love and you can't demand love from another person. So what is Jesus saying? To understand, you have to get out of your Western thought process of love being nookie or goosebumps. And you've got to examine love from the Eastern mindset. Just keeping it real, folks. From the east, where Jesus is, the philosophical perspective of love is ultimately defined by the Greeks who use subsequently four words for love. I'm going to give them to you quickly in the order of less to greatest importance. The first word for love is storge, which is an emotional one-way street kind of love. It's the kind of love that a parent might have for their child. The child might not love their parent, but their parent, the parent loves their child. So it's an emotional love. Philea is a friendly love. It's a two-sided street. It's the love that people have for their friends or their brothers or that children have for their parents. It goes both ways. Then you have thirdly, Eros which is a romantic love that exists between people often in a physical romantic relationship. Fourthly, there is then agape, which I will simply define as an all or nothing kind of love. It is a love of decision and a love of committed consequence. Now because the Greeks esteemed the mind above the emotions and above the physical, From their mindset, the purest love that existed in the human realm, it transcended a person's emotional capacity and was never relegated to being purely a physical pleasure. Instead, to the Greeks, the purest demonstration of love existed in a person's will. A will for what? The will to decide to make a choice to love unconditionally and committedly no matter what the cost. This is why in the East it was common and still is common for there to be prearranged marriages. You see, they believe that right from the onset of a marriage, the husband, the new husband, and the new wife need to experience the deepest manifestation of love by making a choice, not knowing anything of the other person, to love each other without preconditions. Their love would begin in the will. They would have to make a choice before it ever demonstrated itself physically or yielded anything emotionally. In contrast, in the West, because of the way we perceive things, what, what's the order? You see, our love, it's the opposite. It has to yield emotionally. I gotta feel something. And then it has to demonstrate itself physically before it ever enters into a decision of commitment. Ironically, you know, the divorce rates in the East are dramatically lower than they are in the West. I think they understand love way better than we do. And when Jesus says, you shall love the Lord, your God, he uses what Greek word? Any guess? Agape which refers to love based upon a willful decision. Understand, Jesus was never implying that God would force humanity to love him through some demanding directive. Instead, Jesus is saying to the scribe, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? It's the commandment where God issued to humanity an invitation that we might choose to love him. You know, this is the truth that obedience to God without a love for God is nothing more than an empty ritual performed out of obligation of which God takes no delight in. I mean, there's a difference, isn't there, between experiencing the love of your spouse freely versus seeing them do things that they know they're doing it out of obligation. You don't take delight in that. You don't take delight when your kids clean the house because they've got to and you force them versus when you come home and they've just been so thankful that you're their mom and love them so much that they've cleaned the house. That should happen, kids, occasionally. The difference between freedom and obligation. You see, here's the deal. In addition to Jesus's invitation, God would also go, wouldn't he, to great lengths to demonstrate his love then invite us for ours by Jesus' work on the cross, that God demonstrated his love towards us so that we might love him in return. You see, the more that we know God, the more we learn how much God loves us. And the more we learn of his great love, the more we should love and obey him in return. Now, before we continue, there's another component that makes this love of the will, this agape love, so powerful. In the West, love based on emotion is very hard to differentiate between infatuation, isn't it? What we think is love, we come to find out, really was not actually love, but was actually infatuation. As a matter of fact, love based on the physical from the West, it's also very hard to differentiate, to tell the difference between actual love and lust. Infatuation and lust. It's a very blurry line. Which, by the way, is why if you really want to experience true love with another human being, first make it a love of the will before it's a love of the emotions and a love of the physical. Kind of like maybe don't have sex before marriage. Kind of that, that might distort and screw up the whole thing. Maybe God knows what he's talking about. Now in the East, love of the will, it either exists or it doesn't. That's what makes it unique. A person either loves unconditionally or they establish unwarranted conditions. A person's love is either self-sacrificing or it's selfishly motivated. A person's love is either committed or it's wavering. It's an either or dynamic. It either exists if it's an unconditional decision of the mind or it doesn't. I either choose to love or I choose not to. It's very easy to see. Love of the will is a love that will demonstrate itself in obvious ways, or it will demonstrate that it never existed in the first place. Which is why after saying you shall love or make a decision to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, this phrase, with all, it's a little confusing, should actually be translated out of all. This means I'm not loving God with my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, but rather the decision I've made to love God is being demonstrated from or out of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. Since agape love for God possesses, an outward manifestation. You can tell if a person truly loves God or they don't. You're either making a decision to or you're not. It's rather black and white. You either are making a decision to love and to follow and to submit to him or you're making a decision not to love him. Now, since this love possesses an outward manifestation. Jesus continues this thread of thought by saying that the greatest manifestation, if you really want to see if a person loves God, that the greatest manifestation of our love for God will be our love for one another. Verse 31, Jesus continues, and the second, like it, it's this, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Once again, Jesus uses this Greek word agape to describe the love that we should have for our neighbor. Flowing from our decision to love God will be the decision to love those around us. And then he qualifies what he means by this. Jesus says that you should love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And there's a truth that you have a love affair with you. We mentioned this before, that if we were to take a picture of the congregation and we were to show it to you immediately, where do your eyes go? Immediately, yourself. I mean, that's the first thing you look for, yourself. And guess what? Everyone else might look super fly. I mean, it might be like the perfect face, like everyone's in sync. But if you're like, Look in the opposite direction, you'll judge the entire photo, whether it's good or bad, based upon you. That's the way that it works. You see, you are in love with yourself. Ironically, when a person says, I hate myself because I'm ugly and I'm fat, do you know they're actually affirming not a hatred of self, but a deep-seated love for themselves? Because really, If you really hated yourself and you looked in the mirror and you were ugly and you were fat, you'd be like, yes, I'm destroying myself because I hate myself so much. No. You see, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you're like, I hate myself because I'm ugly and I'm fat. No, what you really hate is the fact that you're doing that to what you love so much. I should eat better. I should exercise. You don't hate yourself. You love yourself so much you're upset that you've allowed yourself to lose control. You love you. You love you. And with that in mind, how can we realistically love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves? I mean, okay, Jesus, I get the love your God thing. But how do I love my neighbor as much as I love me? Because I really, really love me. Look at me. So how do we possibly accomplish that? The answer? You have to love God more than you love yourself. You see, you'll never be able to love your neighbor as yourself without first experiencing the power of God's love for you. Love for neighbor is a byproduct of your love for God which is a response of God's love for you. Without God's involvement, you can't love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You have to love God more than anything. Now, there are s- radical implications to Jesus's answer. In the Torah, the law consisted of 613 commands. There were 365 negative commands and 245 positive In Exodus 20, Moses kind of summarized them with just 10, the 10 commandments. In Micah 6, the prophet whittled them down to just three. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. Now in Mark 12, Jesus condenses what was originally 613, then 10, then three, to now two. Simple, love God, love people. That's it. And Paul would even Take Jesus' thought process and go one step further. That the whole law could be summarized with one word, love. If you love God, you will love people. Love. It is the DNA of the Christian. And what this means, why I love this, is Christianity is the most simplistic of all religions. I mean, it really is. What Jesus is saying here is pretty radical. It's not obeying all these laws or adhering to all these commands. It's just real simple. Love God. The only condition that is required for a life with God is a life for God. Now understand, I'm I'm not referring to an emotional love for God. Some tingly feelings. I'm talking about a decision a decision of the mind, of the heart, of the strength, of the soul, of the mind, that I will love God. If that's where you're at, then that's all you need to do. I love what Augustine said. He said, love God with all your heart and then do whatever you want to do. And it's the truth. Because if you truly love God, then what will that dictate? It'll dictate how you love others and your obedience. You will begin to evaluate things, not by what I want to do, but, but, but what brings pleasure to the one that I love. It's really simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do whatever you want to do. So the scribe, he said to Jesus, well said. <laughs> I would say so. Well said, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your soul, with all your strength, to love one neighbors as yourself, it's more than all the, the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Amen, amen, amen. That God delights our obedience more than our sacrifice. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> and after that, no one dared ask him a question. Now, it would appear by this man's affirmation. The scribe, he doesn't argue. There's not a follow-up question. There's just like this admittance of this reality that Jesus has just communicated. Boom, you're right. Awesome. It seems as though this guy is, is a genuine seeker. At this point, he's so close. So why would Jesus then tell him that he's not far from the kingdom of God? You see, I believe at this point for this man, and maybe for you, there are two more hurdles that you have to jump over. First, if you compare the scribe's quote of Deuteronomy 6, verses four and five, with what Jesus said or how Jesus quoted the same passage, you will notice, I don't know if you picked up on it, a very subtle difference. Did you see what it was? The scribe omitted the word Lord. He didn't use it. As we've mentioned, this word in the Hebrew, and he's reciting probably this passage in the Hebrew, it was the unspoken name for God. And the reason that the scribe didn't utter this word when he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4 was the fact that the name of God, this name was held in such high regard, it was considered sacrilegious to even speak it verbally. The Jewish Mishnah said that he who pronounces the name with its own letters, has no part in the world to come. It was like the unpardonable sin to utter with your lips this name for God. And in order, ironically, to ensure that no one, even accidentally, as they're reading the Bible, happened to say this name, they removed the vowels from the name in the text. When you read in the Old Testament, the word Lord, you'll find two variations of it. Capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and then one that's all bold. That doesn't mean the author's screaming it to you. That means that it's emphasizing a difference. In the actual Hebrew, when you find it in caps, it's actually four Hebrew letters. This is known as the tetragrammation, big word. These four letters, Y-H-W-H, and this was the name for God without the vowels. This occurs 6,828 times. In the Old Testament, now here's the problem: the problem is that the scribes demonstrated a false reverence at the expense of a real relationship. And over time, as a matter of fact, even today, do you know the Jews have no idea how to pronounce the name for God? They have lost the vowels. No one knows if it's Yahweh or Jehovah. It's it's a mystery. They lost their most reverent name for God. So what's Jesus's point? Because this scribe omits it, which makes it interesting that Jesus included it. He spoke the unspoken name. In order to know God's love, you have to know God. But how can one know God if you're not even willing to use his name? Now you, can, you can determine a lot about your interactions with anyone else based upon how they use your name. i found this. Like, hey, you, typically not a good name to hear. Zachary Grant, well, that's my wife, and I'm in trouble. Reverend Adams, you have no idea who I am. Like, not a soul that knows me is going to call me reverend. Most won't even call me pastor, and I'm cool with that. Zach, if I hear that, it immediately is like, we've got a connection. We've got a relationship. I'm down with that. This scribe, his first hurdle, he didn't know God. And the first thing that needed to happen in order for him to experience God's love was for him to meet God. But the second thing we're told, that when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he responded saying the man was close, but not quite there. This word wisely in the King James is translated discreetly. It indicates that he not only was correct in his assessment, but he was at this point unable to affirm these things openly, publicly, that he answered discreetly, kind of like he leaned in to answer Jesus. The scribe, he knew what he needed to do. The question is, will he do it? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus tells us something very important. That whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You need to have a relationship with God. You need to know God. You need to proclaim it from the rooftop. But more importantly than all, you need to love God. And these scribes were rejecting Jesus. And this guy's like, something's not adding up. And he comes. And he encounters Jesus. And I believe that we'll meet this scribe in heaven. And so my exhortation to you, stop rejecting Jesus. And instead, it's time to follow him, knowing how much he loves you. So Father,